It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. For years, Washington was shrouded in mystery as the bodies of women kept being discovered throughout the Evergreen State. The circumstances that linked the killings were clear. The victims were mostly sex workers, many of whom were battling drug addiction, who worked along East Sprague Avenue in Spokane, Washington. The women were often solicited for sex, shot in the head, and killed. Oftentimes, their bloodied faces would be wrapped with plastic bags. Between the years 1996 and 1998, it became apparent to authorities that they were dealing with a serial killer. In August of 1998, the unknown assailant struck again. But this time, something was different. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Unbeknownst to 32-year-old Christine Smith, she was picked up by the infamous Spokane serial killer one evening. During the encounter, she suffered an injury to the head, yet she managed to escape the van in which she was attacked. She was able to provide a detailed description of the man, leading to the shocking revelation that this cold-blooded killer was living a double life as a family man and army veteran. Her attacker was none other than Robert Lee Yates. For years, Yates avoided police suspicion working as a National Guard pilot and living with his wife and five children. In 2000, evidence collected from one of the murders pointed toward a suspect, and Yates was finally arrested. Upon his apprehension, his DNA was collected, uncovering 12 other killings for which he was responsible. Yates is currently being held at the Washington State Penitentiary, where he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Mark Safrick worked closely on the case. A retired FBI supervisory special agent, he served on the Bureau's Behavioral Analysis Unit and provided expert witness testimony at Yates' trial. Today, he joins me for an in-depth look at this chilling case. So, Mark, tell me about how you first joined the elite behavioral analysis unit. Yeah, it's an interesting story because I was, I never even looked at law enforcement, even after I had graduated from college. I was, I thought I was headed into medicine and ended up um, becoming a paramedic on an ambulance in California and Sacramento area. And uh, that put me in contact with uh, law enforcement on many calls, shootings, stabbings, assaults, and such. And became fascinated with the work. And then I started going on these citizen ride-along programs and uh, just found law enforcement work really interesting. And 
I became a reserve police officer. And then uh, after a year or so, I became a regular police officer, went to the, actually went to two academies, a reserve academy, then a regular academy. And once I got into law enforcement, I really never looked back. It was fascinating. I started in patrol and then uh, eventually ended up in detectives, uh, promoted into detectives, started in property crimes and went to violent crimes. And that's really where my introduction to behavioral analysis came came about. I was working homicide cases and um, I went to a homicide school and there were a couple of FBI profilers. This was in the early 80s that gave us two days of instruction on this really interesting way of looking at really complex violent crimes. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. And I had a couple of cases I thought would be amenable to presenting to the unit because they, at the time they were cold cases. They weren't my original cases. And that started my interaction with the FBI's behavioral sciences unit at the time. And after a, like a year or so, I just decided that is really the area I wanted to work in. So I applied to the FBI, uh, took me about a year. The process was about a year long, got in and then, you know, started moving around the country. I first worked on an Indian reservation in Wyoming, working all the violent crimes, then went to New York City. Then I went back to Sacramento and then positions opened up in the behavioral uh, analysis unit. That's really why I came into the FBI was to do this kind of work. So really like 11 years later, I'm applying, you know, to, to be in the unit is it's a promotional position. And I got in and I, I loved the work and found it very fascinating, very complex, um, conducted lots of research and stayed in the unit until I retired after 23 years. Part of the reason why the BAU is such an elite unit is because of the varied and the experience and the depth of the experience of every single one of the investigators within. And your background is no exception from a reservation in Wyoming to New York City to Sacramento. And that's an incredibly uh, wide breadth of experience that you had. And especially with violent homicides, it primed you as the perfect person, perhaps, to approach the Robert Yates case. Well, I think, you know, we have a, there's a lot of training that goes on when I first got into the unit and then continuous training. Plus I was engaged in doing research in sexual homicide. Mm -hmm. I'd been doing, you know, analysis of violent crime for really almost, you know, a decade and a half before I even um, got into the unit. Then I spent uh, almost 13 years in the unit. So there's a lot of experience, both from research and from training, but also the experiential component of really working these complex types of cases around the world. So can you walk us through your first introduction to the what we now know is the Robert Yates investigation? So I was assigned to the West Coast. I had um, most of the Western United States, uh, the states, I covered that area, of course. So Washington was a state I covered. And, you know, the case came in as it does. Law enforcement makes a request uh, to the behavioral analysis unit. We're all of the profilers are, uh, unlike lots of FBI field offices, all the profilers are located at the FBI Academy at Quantico. So the request comes in for assistance in the case. And I'm, I'm thinking back, and I think it was probably around 1999, 
this was before Yates had been identified as as the uh, you know offender in this case. So these were just a series of unsolved um, you know sex worker murders, and because they're such an in such a diverse geographic area, it's I think it's always important, especially in serial murder investigations, to to go out meet with the task force, which I did, and then you know, look at all of the crime scenes chronologically, because part of what I'm trying to understand, um, you know, because we don't have the offender, all we have is offender behavior. And it, and you have to also understand that in these kinds of cases, it's very difficult because unlike other types of complex murder cases, you don't really have a crime scene in terms of where the murder happened. You don't have a contact scene all you really have is a body dump site. So you're really limited to really to what evidence you can gather from the geographic location, access to that location, and what evidence you find on, on the victim's body. So these types of serial cases are, are very difficult. So for me, it's important to go to each of the crime scenes, to do them chronologically so I can try to understand what types of decisions the offender is making, you know, in terms of where he's deciding, you know, to, to, uh, to dump these bodies. Uh, and that becomes very useful. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Before I pick up from what you just said, what exact department reached out and how many sex worker victims had there been before they determined or concluded that this they that that they might all be connected and that they needed your help? So my recollection is because we didn't know about all of the homicides that had, you know, that Yates had been responsible for. Um, I think at the time there were 14 homicides. Um if we go back, you know, in hindsight, we know at least the last homicide that we're aware of was in 1998. So mm -hmm. I think by the time I went out, all of the victims had been identified. I think we were talking about 14 victims at the time. And I, my responsibility was to meet with the task force. By this time, of course, they had already decided that they had a serial killer um, that was responsible for at least most of these cases. That was another job was to, to conduct a linkage analysis to make sure that we don't have one or two or three cases that are, you know, occurring during this time frame that get linked in or, you know, bundled in with this group of homicides that aren't really part of the, of the series. At the time, there was a task force. I think Cal Walk, Captain Cal Walker, um, was, you know, in charge of the task force. So when you have task force, um, you know, investigations, you, you're dealing with multiple agencies at the point, at this point. And it's, it's also, it's for manpower, it's for financial resources, um, you know, to, to move these cases forward. But yeah, when I went out in 99 to, to look at these scenes, this was a task force operation. 
So you go out there and to remind viewers, his the first victims were from 1975. So you are essentially inheriting um, or arriving to a, a very historical, a very hallmarked by longevity as well, f- series of 14 murders at that point. So what conclusions were you able to draw when you went out there to Washington initially? Well, so that's the interesting part. So you you have the first homicides in 75. And this is why it's really important in the type of work I do to differentiate between an offender's MO or modus operandi and their ritualized or need-driven behaviors. Because when we're talking about the series of homicides, we're really looking at like a 23-year span. So Offenders mature, um, I mean, not only, you know, in age, but also in sophistication. They come up against uh, obstacles, whether they're um, uh, media obstacles or weather obstacles or location obstacles that sometimes they're not, you know, they're not prepared for. So they have to make adjustments. Those kinds of adjustments tend to alter their modus operandi. So, you know, you reference these first two homicides in 75, but they're, they don't look anything like the later homicides. So making a linkage to those cases, you know, you have to be really careful about assigning, like, are, is this a different offender or is this somebody, you know, is this, is this the same guy that we're looking at? Clearly, as you get into 96 and 97, 98, you, you're getting, uh, victimology that looks very similar. You're getting sex workers. They're all females. They're almost all has a uh, Caucasian with a, I think, uh, Hernandez was a light skinned uh, Hispanic and, um, and Jennifer Joseph was uh, also like half Hawaiian, half Caucasian. So he's got a preference for gender. He's got a preference for age really between about, um, early 20s to maybe mid to late 30s. Um, and, and another thing you have to consider is that when you're looking at these, at the age of these victims, you have to be careful because these women lead a really hard life. So although in age, they might appear to be younger because of their drug usage and the tough life living on the street, a life of prostitution. The, these, a lot of these women looked a lot older than they, they really were. So that's what I was doing first was like, what, what are we dealing with here in terms of selection process? Because the Oliver and Savage homicides in 75 are very, very, look very, very different. So walk us through then, you get to Washington State, what conclusions were you able to draw? What did you learn on your first visit there? What did you present to the task force? So after I visited all the scenes, right, and we, and so, and not all my visiting the scenes, but, you know, I'm looking at the victimology of each of these victims. When did they disappear? You know, interestingly enough, they all disappeared while they're working, right? So you have somebody who's familiar with uh, the, um, you know, the, the stretch in Spokane where the sex workers are working. You also have, you know, sex workers in Seattle and sex workers in uh, Tacoma, where the two of the cases were. But this is a guy who is who is very unassuming because many of these women were aware of this of a serial killer operating in Spokane. 
And even some of the women said, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I could recognize, you know, I would be able to recognize someone who's going to be a problem. And that really wasn't the case. We actually had one of the victims who had said that and ended up becoming one of of Yates's victims. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at the crime scenes, also looking at what is he doing to be successful in his crimes? What, what is the MO? And is there a progression in his MO? It's like, what is he doing to be better? And you start to see this if you look at all of the victims in terms of where is he killing them? Well, the killings are occurring mostly in his vehicle. All right. Well, that creates two problems. One, um, so unlike a lot of serial killers, although his killings are up close and personal, he is using a firearm, which is more atypical of serial killers. Um, that they tend to use weapons of, you know, personal weapons, their hands for strangulation or smothering, but that they like the up close and personal aspect. He also liked the up close and personal. It's just that he decided to use a firearm. Um, he was using a small caliber firearm for a reason, because if you're shooting a weapon inside of your vehicle, unlike in the movies, it's deafening and you won't be able to hear anything once you fire a shot. So using a small caliber weapon serves a couple of purposes. One, it's easier on you as the killer. Two, it's better for you because it, there's less of a report. It's a it's a quieter report. And so you're not going to be attracting as much attention or witnesses um, in the area. But also, you don't have through and through penetration either. So if you're using a high caliber weapon and you're shooting somebody in the head, the risk of that uh, round penetrating is a lot higher. Well, if it penetrates, then you've got other problems like it's making, you know, a, it's leaving a lot of forensic evidence in your vehicle. So I think, I think he was learning this because he used a high caliber weapon for his first two murders. But I think he recognized like, I, I can't, I can't be shooting a 357 Magnum inside my car. That's just really going to be problematic. Um, so he moved to a smaller caliber weapons. Plus, you know, a 357 could easily penetrate. And if the victim's in the car with you, does that round bouncing around? Does it hit you? You know, there's considerations. I think he's thinking about these areas. And he was in the military. He understood firearms. So, uh, you know, I think he had a firm grasp on why should I be using a smaller caliber weapon? And then also I was telling the task force, you can see like the change in his MO in the first, um, you know, with, with Oliver and Savage, you, you see if it's an outdoor crime scene, there's movement of the bodies, but then, you know, he starts, you know, and they're high risk. They're a lower risk victim, higher risk for him because he's an outdoor setting. He doesn't know if there's witnesses around. He doesn't know if there's other people that where this, you know, shooting could attract, you know, witnesses. So he gets more control of the situation, but he still has a, a, a forensic evidence problem. He first tries to address that. If you look at, uh, at the Jennifer Joseph and the Shannon Zelinsky homicides with towels, right? He's got towels. So he's trying to either clean up, blood um, and tissue 
with these towels and he disposes of the towels at the scenes at the, at the dump sites. But then, you know, he, he's figuring out a better way to do this. And he starts getting these grocery bags and he starts covering the heads of the victims. So he shoots them and then he covers their heads to prevent, uh, you know, the, the, the forensic evidence from getting on his vehicle. Why? Because he's killing them in a different location in which he's dumping them. So if you think about the progression of these women getting into a car with him, right, they're going to be working in a particular area and they have, they have areas that they'll go to service their customers, but you can't just drive somebody, start driving them miles away. That's going to alert them. They're going to become really, it's going to be really problematic. So we know he's killing them in the general area where he engages with them. But then he has to transport them somewhere else, and he uses the, these bags to cover their heads. Now, as we all know, if you've used you know grocery bags or Walmart bags, um, a lot of them have holes in them, right? I mean, you just look at them. They're just very flimsy. So he started with one, and then he was using two. And then as you can look at the series of homicides, you know, he's moving from two to three, sometimes four bags just simply to protect the interior of his vehicle. So his MO is changing because he's learning to, you know, to not be leaving forensic evidence. And if he leaves it, he's got to clean it up. He's using smaller caliber weapons. He gets control of these women. He engages in the, the various things that he wants to engage in, but he's also engaging with a lot of these victims post-mortem. So that's another that's another aspect of it, this whole paraphilia of necrophilia. And it looks like even in one of the victims, he's coming back maybe hours or a day later to engage with the victim, um, sexually with the victim. But we know he's undressed a lot of the victims uh, post-mortem and is engaged with them. So this part is, you know, we're talking about with the task force, I'm talking about what type of individual this is. He's forensically conscious. Um, he's, he's a guy who will be very unassuming. He will not look like somebody that these women might suspect. Even when these women are on high alert, this is a guy who might have, you know, he might have a child seat in the back of his car or toys on the front seat where, you know, he's, they, they look in the window and they, they, they see this stuff and he's like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I got my kids. I have to, I have to drive my kids to daycare, you know? And so that lowers their guard. So we, this, this guy's got some level of sophistication clearly planning. And he's not killing every prostitute he comes in contact with. I mean, we've known this with lots, with most serial killers. You know, he he's selecting victims. You know, sometimes he's engaging and then, you know, they get out of the vehicle and they move on. So what nights is he, is he the predator hunter? And what nights is he just looking, you know, to engage with these women? And maybe he's engaging with these women, but there's an event that happens. And that's what we were trying to understand because clearly he's, he is uh, engaging with lots of prostitutes, but not killing all of them. So why, what is the trigger here? And I think when we looked at the Christine Smith case, 
Now, we didn't discover Christine until after Yates was arrested. So, you know, we didn't have this information, but it's difficult. As I said before, you're trying to, you get a dump site. And so, you know, forensically, you're not getting a lot of evidence. You don't get the contact site. You don't get the place where they're killed. All you get is this body dump site. So those become very important. We also noticed that he was at first, and this makes sense, you're, you're concerned that law enforcement might, you know, identify you. So you're driving these victims out greater distances and you're dumping them. I, I don't think that Yates was ever concerned really about getting identified because when I testified about this case in Pierce County over just south of Seattle, I noted that he's only getting rid of the bodies in, in a rather pedestrian way. He, he doesn't care if they're discovered. He just cares if they're discovered immediately. So he'll take them, drag them off the side of the road, put them under a tree, roll them down an embankment. He's not trying to, you know, he just wants to put time and distance between himself and the victim and this location for a short period of time. After that, he doesn't really care because some of the victims were off of generally walking paths or right off the side of the road where people could find them if they were walking their pets, which is how several of the victims were were, were identified and located simply by, because people walking their their dogs, you know, saw these, these uh, women. So he's not concerned about really making sure that nobody ever finds them. He doesn't care about that. He just wants to, he just wants to get him out of their, his car and just temporarily get him sort of, sort of hidden. We'll be right back with more of this story. I draw an interesting contrast between the unassuming nature of him and, and at this point in the story of what you, you know, can, can sort of confirm or, are purporting that he's unassuming for all the reasons that you just stated. And uh, when he was arrested and more information came out about him, that many who had worked with him or taught him as a student, oh, yeah. et cetera, that they all sort of didn't remember him. There were many reports. There were, there were many who did, sure. But there were also many that were like, yep, I, I don't remember him, that he floated through right. many chapters of his life quite unremarkably, quite unmemorably. And that is a contrast to the car he drove, I thought. It's my understanding it was a 77 Corvette. Well, he he did use the Corvette, and that actually was what got him identified was right. this sort of unique vehicle. But he, he right. used a van later on because he needed a location okay. where he could interact with these with these women in a way that gave him more latitude. Very difficult to do that kind of interaction in a two seat Corvette. But that's the Corvette what I was thinking. became yeah. memorable to some of the witnesses, right? And that's that's what got him identified. But but you're right about that. You know, this is this is sort of the hallmark and the conundrum that when the public thinks about serial killers, they tend to picture these monsters, right? But what actually makes these guys successful is their really unassuming nature. They're just, they just blend in, right? They're, they're not memorable individuals that, you know, they've got a job. Some of them are married. Yates was married. He had kids. I don't think it was a great marriage, despite what his wife oftentimes said. Um, but 
you know, they're, they're unassuming individuals. And I think that that is very disarming for these women that are actually on high alert, clearly aware there's a serial killer in their midst, but this is what they do for a living, right? So, you know, that they're very confident that they have the ability to recognize when somebody, you know, sort of sends up those signals, but, but that's not true. They can't. Because that, that's the nature of these guys. And if you think about it, it's actually one of the hallmarks that makes them successful serial killers is that they are really unassuming individuals. You know, you just look at them and they're just like your average guy. But also the people that lived around Yates, much like many of these killers, you know, people saw, knew, knew him, the neighbors, were absolutely astounded that he could be the guy. In fact, there were several that said, there's no way that it's him. It's just no way. I know this guy, right? But that's the, that's the issue, right? You don't really know him. What you know is this public persona that he puts out there. And everybody, when in the unit, we talk about these individuals having sort of the public, their public life, right? Which they show to everybody, and then they have their private life, which is shared, you know, with their you know, ver- people in their own family, maybe a girlfriend, a wife. But then they have that secret life. And the secret life is only known to them. There's an interesting analogy. Um, uh, BTK, uh, my, mm. my co-author on my book and who interviewed BTK and, and wrote a book on him, um, he described a very interesting process, which he calls cubing. So if you look at a cube, the six sides of a cube, if he's presenting this side of the cube to you, that's the side that could be, you know, the Boy Scout leader, the pastor, the helicopter pilot, right? Everything looks normal. To the neighbors, he's presenting a different side, you know, the the friendly neighbor who mows his lawn and walks his dog and has five kids. But when he becomes that hunter predator, he flips that cube. And now another side is facing the front. It's a totally unrecognizable side. It's the predator. It's the guy who's out there hunting, looking for a victim that he intends to kill. So it's an interesting contrast because the, the neighbors and the friends and those people, they never see that side. He never presents that side to them. He's always presenting some other different side. And that's why, you know, you always hear it. It's sort of cliche, like the neighbor says, yeah, I can't believe that this is the guy. I mean, it's not him. I know him. Yeah, we had the pleasure of speaking with Carrie Rawson here on the Fox True Crime podcast, which is the daughter of BTK. And she spoke from her personal experience growing up with him as her biological father, raising her um, to that effect, essentially, of not only realizing later because of logistics why that could have been true, not because per se of red flags that had been presented. So staying back with this one now. I want to go back for a moment on Christine Smith, who you just mentioned, because she was the only survivor. Um, So can you please share for listeners about Christine Smith? So Christine Smith really gives us a window into into Yates' thought process. So at this time, he had the van 
and he had a bed in the back of the van. So, you know, he's making advances in terms of like, it's better if I have a van, I can engage in the van, I can, I can kill them, nobody will see the body back there, I can transport them and then can dump them. So Christine Smith, you know, gets in and she's getting paid, uh, you know, to perform oral sex on him. And after about five to seven minutes, you know, he's not becoming aroused. And she makes a, a comment about this. And I think that's sort of the trigger for Yates is this negative sort of affirmation of his inability to perform. And he shoots her. But what Yates thinks happens is that he shoots her like a lot of the victims um, but the bullet doesn't penetrate her skull. It it explodes on the surface of her skull. She thinks that she got hit by you know some blunt force object, and then she starts backing away. And Yates is sort of sitting back there because I think what he's waiting for is for all of this to take effect for her to die. Because with some of the victims, this took you know a short period of time. So he's basically like, well, what's going on, Christine? And, you know, she's backing away to the door. She actually gets to the door and, and gets it open. I think all this time, Robert is thinking, oh, she's just going to collapse here or outside the outside the van. But she doesn't. She actually gets away, completely unaware that she had been shot. So she goes to the hospital and the hospital uh, attendees are looking at her and she tells him she got hit by something. Somebody hit her on the head. So, you know, they they see this injury in her head and they, you know, they, they clean it up, but they don't recognize it as a gunshot wound. And it isn't actually until Yates is arrested and, you know, he is shown on television where Christine looks at this, you know, at the photo and goes, I know this guy. And then, of course, you know, sort of the M.O. comes out about engaging with the, with them sexually. And then when, they, you know, that he sh typically shoots them in the in the back left part of the head, which is an interesting dynamic because it was a way that I also used to link a lot of these victims together is where he shoots them. But it's a fascinating story because then Christine contacts the police and says, hey, I I was with this guy and I think, you know, he might have shot me. Now she's thinking what that was, was not a blunt force injury with an object, but actually getting shot. So she goes to the hospital and they remove these, these uh, metal fragments. They, they x-ray it and you can see there's a whole pattern of this broken bullet under her, you know, between her scalp and her skull. And they remove these uh, fragments and actually identify them as belonging to a particular type of a 25 round. So she survived, but that was a window for us into sort of his thought process of, you know, if a woman could satisfy him and arouse him, that then they would uh, survive. And in fact, there were a number of prostitutes who came forward later who said, I'd been with Robert a number of times and, you know, he always seemed like, you know, a good John to me, but maybe it's because those women were in a position to satisfy Robert or, you know, arouse him. And when they couldn't, or if they made condescending remarks about him or perhaps, you know, sort of coarse remarks, maybe that was a trigger for 
him deciding which would die. It certainly made sense in the Christine Smith case. And, you know, the fact that she survived, luckily, um, was very helpful for us in understanding sort of his thought process. So upon your creation of the behavioral analysis of this, at that point, unidentified to you offender, when you presented it to the task force, what happened then and how was ultimately Robert Yates triangulated? So I think by the t- I was there and Yates had not been identified. So I was right. I was looking at, you know, his progression as a serial killer, what things he was doing, his forensic astuteness in terms of using the bags and what that really meant in terms of, you know, a killing site and then driving to another location where we would dump the bodies. Also Sometimes clothing items were being removed. So was he keeping trophies or souvenirs of these victims? But eventually, of course, I left because uh, I'd been out there for a couple of weeks. Um, eventually, I left and he still hadn't been identified. And it wasn't until they really started to focus in on the um, the Corvette. And, you know, Yates had been contacted early on as a potential suspect. But, you know, at the time, they didn't have anything on him. Um, but then, uh, this Corvette was identified. Um, they actually, you know, found out that Yates, who, guy who they'd been looking at, had a white 77 Corvette, which he sold, right? So he was getting rid of evidence, but they were actually able to recover that Corvette. And then they took the Corvette apart. And see, this is where, this is where his MO changed because this was the Corvette that Jennifer Joseph was killed in. And Jennifer Joseph, he only used a towel. So he, some of the blood that had seeped down between the seats. And yeah, he cleaned the seats well, but he didn't get the blood that had dripped down between the seats into the metal areas where the car, the seat attaches to the floor. So they'd removed the seats and they actually found blood there. And that was, you know, identified uh, as belonging to Jennifer Joseph. So here was a clear link to Yates. And it was the Jennifer Joseph case that actually, um, you know, got him arrested. Now, this was an unusual case for me because I came in as the profiler with the task force when Yates was unidentified. So it was just an unknown individual. And we were trying to say, like, what type of personality is this guy going to have? What is, what is he going to look like? Because when you start looking at a pool of suspects and when you talk about sex worker homicides, they're a very high risk category, especially when they're working. And we really had the highest risk of a category of victims because not only were they sex workers, but most of them were drug addicted. Mm-hmm. So when you're drug addicted, many times you're you're willing to get into a van with somebody or into a car with somebody even if you're you know sort of your uh the hairs on the back of your neck are raised simply because you need drugs so very high risk population low risk for the offender so when you have that sort of dynamic your potential offender pool is literally any average age male who is in in Spokane or the surrounding area that could drive down to the strip on Sprague and pick up a prostitute. So it's a tremendously large pool of potential suspects. Yates was one of those suspects. 
among hundreds of others. You know, and so what we were trying to do is narrow that potential pool down to, you know, a, maybe a reasonable number of individuals to look at. And that's what the profile is really meant to do, not to identify a particular individual, but to say, like, if we're prioritizing suspects, let's look for somebody that looks like this. And that's, I think, what I left the task force with. But then ultimately, you know, I ended up uh, coming back after Yates' arrest. Of course, Yates pled pled guilty um, to avoid the death penalty. He pled guilty to the homicides in Spokane. But at the time, the two homicides um, in Tacoma, uh, Washington, in Pierce County, were also included. But the, the DA there hadn't been contacted about that. And the DA decided that they wanted to pursue capital punishment with with Yates. So those two cases were pulled out. So Yates, for the cases in in, um, in Spokane, I think he was sentenced to 408 years, but he still was going to go to trial. One of the cases was held out. So they that's not unusual. They hold a case out, probably the strongest case, outside of Jennifer Joseph. Um, basically, if he reneges on the deal or, you know, something happens, they always have a, a holdback case that they can move forward, you know, with death penalty. But uh, Barbara Corey Boulay, who was the prosecutor in Pierce County, contacted me. I'd worked several other cases for her and said, can you conduct a linkage analysis? In other words, what we need is we need to be able to link the cases in Tacoma to the cases in Spokane. And we want to do that forensically and behaviorally. And so that's what I did you know, for trial um, was to conduct a linkage analysis. So I'm, I'm doing some cases were linked forensically. Some were linked by bullets. Some were linked by types of bullets, but not specifically. Others were linked by DNA, but not all of them. So my job really was to look at all of these cases and identify, you know, what are the commonalities in, in all of the cases and how do those commonalities, at least in my opinion, how do they link to the, to the two cases that occurred in Tacoma? And it's, it's my understanding that a button from Jennifer's then sweater was also found um, buried yes. deep in the Corvette as well. Right. So let's go, let's go to the, the Robert Yates, the person. He's from a very, he's from an island, Whidbey Island off of Seattle. That's where he grew up. And that's, um, Whidbey Island is really interesting because it's half, there's a prominent naval air station there. Um, mm -hmm. And it's sort of half military and half uh, deeply, you know, West Coast Island style. And his family, um, it's my understanding that his grandfather had, six children there. So he has many, he had many family members on what is technically a small island by way of population. And again, we talked about his unassuming nature. There were, you know, he was surrounded by relatives, um, served time in the military. And it seemed as if when you look back on what is sort of a checkered professional history, that the only thing he really was successful at was being a helicopter pilot. And that he, right. it seems that he was, he excelled at being a helicopter pilot instructor. He was married for a very short amount of time at the age of 20 and then remarried uh, before the divorce papers were even finalized with whom he then had 
five children. And it seemed that the only brush with the law he had, other than when this all all these things happened, like getting pulled over with one of those sex workers in the car and whatnot, was when his daughter ran to a police station and crying and said that he beats her. And he said, I just slapped her because she was disrespectful. So it's kind of help us and the listeners understand the person he was and how that was extrapolated in your analysis so that when there was that positive identification, you know, the overlay of your analysis and the person that was Robert Yates, how did it line up? What things were important? What things about his background uh, were presented in this serial killer MO of his? Yeah. So that's an interesting dynamic because I, that's not really, you know, that's not really what I'm doing or what I'm tasked to do mm. is because I'm not looking at Robert Yates as an individual, especially when I'm going to be testifying as an expert witness in this trial. I have a, you know, I have a very narrow range of expertise and that really was to conduct a linkage analysis which I had done in this in the Spokane cases because I had been out there, and then you know it conducted that same analysis in the Tacoma cases, linking those with the with the uh, Spokane cases. But because I will testify in the in the trial, I don't get into Yates's background. Mm. I mean, I I need to keep that, and I think your listeners need to understand that. My job is to make this assessment, and that assessment is really independent of who the who the prosecution has as the defendant in the case, because I can't right. make that linkage between the behavior that I'm seeing and Robert Yates. That's the that's the purview of the judge and the jury. That's their responsibility. My responsibility is basically saying, if you look at all of the behavior, and whether that's physical evidence or forensic evidence or behavioral evidence, if you look at all of those commonalities in the Spokane cases and you compare that to um, the Oliver and Savage homicides and you compare that to the two homicide cases in Tacoma, here are the linkage commonalities that I see in these cases. And that linkage doesn't ever identify Robert Yates. Now, the prosecutor can use that information to say, and yes, these commonalities are consistent with Robert Yates. And we know forensically that we've linked him to several of these crimes. And then behaviorally, we link him, you know, to a number of other crimes. But I don't, I don't. And it's it's something that's hard for people to understand because I don't talk about the suspect in the case. In when I was in Spokane, I didn't know who the suspect was. And when I was doing the case for Pierce County, I I was really limited. And I have to be careful because I don't want to really get into Yates as an expert witness because that's not in in, in the purview of what I'm doing. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Was there any uh, murder, anything within the murders that was outside of his MO that didn't represent an evolution 
but represented an aberration? Was there anything that he did that was spontaneous or random that you noticed um, throughout your investigation? Yeah, yes, there was. And I would say that if you look from the Oliver and Savage homicides in 75 to the last homicides in 98, it's a 23-year span, you see changes in, in his MO where he sort of perfects this ability you know, to capture these women, disarm them, be charming with them for a period of time, and then kill them and engage with them, sometimes sexually before death, but many times sexually after death. Um, but the, the uh, Melody Murphin case is a very big change in behavior for him. Um, some of the behavior we can see, you know, so we saw a progression of use of bags, Mm -hmm. starting, well, with no bags and no towels with the Savage and Oliver crimes, but they're outdoor scenes. Then with Zelensky and, and uh, Jennifer Joseph, um, you have the towels, and then you start seeing bags being used, and then you start seeing a lot of bags being used. But there were a couple in there. I think uh, Hernandez was one, uh, and uh, I think Michelle Durning was another, where you don't see bags either, but... We were pretty sure those were outdoor scenes based on our analysis of looking at the crime scene. So it would make sense if you're outside your vehicle, you don't need, you know, you're not, you don't need to protect the vehicle. So you don't need to use bags. And Michelle was 47. So. Right. So Michelle was older. Yeah. Um, we think Michelle, we think it was outside because the area in which she was killed was an area that prostitutes would bring their Johns and then engage with them. Um, so he didn't use, we think she was outside. He did, you know, again, uh, it is an area used by a lot of different women. So he knew that. So he, he doesn't, you know, he's not going to great lengths to, to hide her, but um, he does put her, you know, sort of in the bushes under a hot tub cover, covers her up. But eventually, you know, she's discovered relatively quickly. But with Melody Murphan, it's a very interesting, and we don't know why, because Yates has never talked about this. But he, he engaged in some really high-risk behavior. He took Melody Murphan back to his home, and he actually dug a hole outside, right outside of his bedroom window, and he buried her about three feet deep in a, in a rose bed. And when you look at this juxtaposition of where she is, first of all, she's the only victim that, that he brings home. So there must be some connection that he had with her. And then he picks a very specific location to bury her. That is literally on the other side of the headboard of his bed in his bedroom. So you can sort of see this fantasy component where if he's with his wife in the bedroom, all he has to think about is just on the other side of this wall, just on the other side of my headboard, one of my victims is buried three feet down. Incredibly risky because if they're ever discovered, there's no explanation, right? What are you going to say? How did that victim get at your house? All of the rest of them, you know, are essentially body dumps, you know, in outlying areas around Spokane. So what, what do you say about that? So that kind of very risky behavior, I think, is very interesting. I would suggest that there's probably some relationship dynamic that he had with Murphy that he did not have with the other um, sex workers. 
And by way of my final question, in your long and storied career in federal service with the FBI and in law enforcement prior, what does this case mean to you? What did you learn from it? What impact did it have on your career as a whole? Well, I think, gosh, these types of cases are so sad because typically, and this has been historical, when you deal with high-risk victims, especially sex workers or prostitutes or drug-addicted individuals who end up getting killed, the public oftentimes goes, well, yeah, but like, look at their lifestyle. They're, you know, they're assuming the risk. But, you know, a lot of these women, this is the only choice that they have. And in these cases, we forget about the victims so often. And when I was first in Spokane and I was going to all of these different scenes, I was meeting a lot of family members of these women and counselors, you know, who put a personal face on each of these women. They're all individuals. They all have their own personalities. And I think that was one of the things about this case that really struck me is that you know, we have to, we have to all, despite the fact that they're engaged in the sex trade, despite the fact that they're maybe using drugs or addicted to drugs, they're all individual human beings who deserve a level of dignity. They can't be forgotten and they have to all be treated like any other homicide crime victim. And I think that really was brought home to me working on this case before it was solved. Um, I've, I've done lots of serial murder investigations and each time I do one, um, it, it's very important that the victims always become paramount and central to the focus of, of what I'm doing. Because honestly, the way I look at it, oftentimes when FBI profilers are called in at a case, you've got seasoned homicide investigators who know what they're doing. But sometimes they just run out of leads. They, they, you know, they're a couple of years into their investigation and they just are looking for a fresh eyes look at this case. Someone else who can look at it in a different way that perhaps can help move the case forward. So a lot of times I think about this in terms of I'm, I'm standing in the shoes of the victim here. I might be the last hope that we can move this case forward to get an identification or start to reinvigorate the case. So I put a lot of pressure on myself because a lot of times when these cases come to us, they're years cold. And if I can find something, some minutia, some difference in the behavior, something that can, you know, give law enforcement a way to move the case forward, that is very gratifying for me. I'm so grateful to you for your service and for that level of commitment and dedication. The concept that every life is equal, every murder deserves equal effort, equal attention, equal justice. And the fact that in reality, that's not the case and that people who have certain vocations or certain demographics are seen as, as discardable. And that's exactly why serial killers like Robert Yates succeed for so long. Perhaps it's the unassuming quality, right? They can blend in, but it's because the victims have been deemed discardable by society and therefore, um, 
And that's, that is also what is so heartbreaking and disgusting about the nature of these crimes is the fact that these women were discarded as such and murdered as such. Um, so having people like you who are standing in their footsteps for them, giving a voice to the voiceless is really incredible. And I'm grateful to you for that. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. I appreciate that. I, I think it's very hard because this population moves around a lot. Mm. So they don't, you know, if you're a sex worker in, in Spokane, you're not, you don't stay in Spokane. You know, you're moving down to, you're moving to Seattle, to San Francisco, to um, Portland, to Los Angeles. So when these women just disappear, it, you know, people don't think like, oh, somebody, she must have been, you know, killed because she's not around. Many times they just pack up and just move down to another location. So it, it's really difficult. And then, of course, you understand in serial murder investigations, when you have a lot of victims, most people just lump them all together as just the victims, right? But you, you can't. They're all people. They're all individuals. And they had their own personalities, their own families, their own people that loved them and cared about them. And I think, you know, you have to humanize them that, in that way. And that's really important when you work these kinds of cases. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for centering them. Thanks, And Emily. Mark, thank Appreciate you for joining us today. It's such an honor to have you. Such a, a really gripping and compelling story. And to know that your work contributed to the eventual apprehension and conviction of Robert Yates is, um, it's, it's again, it's an honor to have you here representing well, all of that. I, I, mean, I, thank I you always have to say that the men and women who worked on the task force worked tirelessly for months and months, long hours every day. I mean, they're, they're really the heroes here because, you know, I come in and I, I can add something to it, but they're, they're really the people that deserve all of the, the credit. Um, and, you know, Yates pled before, I, you know, I was involved. I, I was involved in, you know, in his uh, trial in Pierce County where he was mm -hmm. convicted, but um, it's, it's a team effort, right? So I, I wouldn't ever take credit away from the men and women who just worked on this case so many hours, thousands and thousands of hours. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.